0: Ted Audio Collective.
1: This archival episode of Design Matters originally dropped in August of 2022.
0: It's not women's fault that they are systematically denied opportunities. And I think it's incredibly dangerous for us to give women the message that if they only did something differently, if they only wore a softer sweater, if they only spoke with a smile, if they only did this, if they only did that, then the doors would open.
1: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Jessica Nordell talks about how implicit biases shape our world in negative ways.
0: We need to solve the problem of the expression of bias. That's where the work needs to be done.
2: Hey, everyone. I have some exciting news. For the first time ever, Design Matters is going on tour. This September 18th through the 21st, On Air presents Design Matters Live with me, Roxanne Gay, and some very, very special guests. We're doing shows in New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. Design Matters has always been about the people I interview and their stories, but it is also about how we all come together through creativity. If you want to join us, you can get your tickets today at onairpresents.com. There are general admission seats and VIP packages that include a meet and greet with me and Roxanne, plus our books and all kinds of other design treats. We'll be announcing our special guests soon, so stay tuned in the podcast and on my social channels. Again, it's September 18th through the 21st in New York, Boston, Washington DC and Philadelphia and tickets are available at onairpresents.com. Hope to see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Fry.
0: And I'm Ann Morris. And we are the hosts of a new TED podcast called Fixable. We've helped leaders at some of the world's most competitive companies solve all kinds of problems. On our show, we'll pull back the curtain and give you the type of honest, unfiltered advice we usually reserve for top executives. Maybe you have a coworker with boundary issues or you want to know how to inspire and motivate your team. No problem is too big or too small. Give us a call and we'll help you solve the problems you're stuck on. Find Fixable wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Last year, science and cultural journalist Jessica Nordell published her first book and it's more timely and relevant than ever now. It's called The End of Bias, A Beginning, How We Eliminate Unconscious Bias and Create a More Just World. The science of how we think without really thinking and what we can do to change the pernicious patterns of thought. We're going to talk about that and about her broad and varied career. She was once a staff comedy writer for a Prairie Home Companion, and she's produced literary radio shows, and she's also worked with Krista Tippett on her podcast, On Being. Her science journalism has been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and other publications. And yes, she is also a poet and an essayist. Jessica Nordell, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Jessica, I
2: understand you are a direct descendant of the very last woman to be tried for witchcraft in the state of Massachusetts. How did you discover this?
0: (laughs) Yes. So when I was working on research for the book, The End of Bias, I took a detour into genealogy because I really wanted to understand how my own story fit into the story of this country and the inheritances that we have received, racial inheritances, gender inheritances, patriarchal inheritances. And so I really wanted to understand more about where I came from. And I found some boxes in my mother's home that she had been sent by a distant cousin. And while I was going through those boxes, I found the story of this woman who is my, I think, 11th great-grandmother and was tried for witchcraft three times in Massachusetts, um, acquitted each time, and after the third time, she got the hell out of Massachusetts and escaped to New York with her family. She and her daughter were both tried for witchcraft. Do you know why? Do you know what powers they seem to have? The woman... I believe her her moniker was the Witch of Wallingford. Wow. Yeah. She and her daughter were accused of having some kind of impact on other women in the town. They were affecting them, making them sick and were accused of witchcraft as a result. Um, let's talk a little bit about your
2: more recent background. <laughs> you were born in Los Angeles to parents you've described as a surfer and a conscientious objector, um, but were raised in Green Bay, Wisconsin, where you said your house was halfway between a cemetery to prison. So what was that like?
0: Yeah. You know, my um, my mom is from L.A. My dad is from New York and they a compromised in the middle of. A country. Yeah, <laughs> compromise. Um, they they moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin without any personal connections or family or anything like that. And it was a both very strange place to grow up and a very normal place to grow up. I mean, it was kind of this quintessential small town existence big families, everybody knows everybody else. But it was a strange place to grow up for me because um, I'm Jewish and there were like very few Jews, if any, in Green Bay. So I was always this sort of like weird, dark haired, you know, nerdy kid in a room of blonde, blue eyed, you know, (laughs) children. Um, So grew up always being a bit on the outside, I think, as a result, which in some ways, you know, was a really useful training for the rest of life.
2: Who was the conscientious objector and who was the surfer?
0: Uh, My dad was a conscientious objector. He enrolled in the army and then filed um, CO status. So as to not go to Vietnam. And my mom was a surfer and they were are as different from one another as you could imagine. My mom has been a lifelong Republican. My dad is a lifelong Democrat. My mom is probably the only college student who voted for Richard Nixon uh, in the country. Wow. And my dad was this, you know, sort of bleeding heart liberal. And so I grew up in a in a family of people who disagreed a lot about everything um, politically and, and otherwise.
2: It seems like you might have taken uh, after your dad in terms of being a conscientious objector. I understand while you were a student at Washington Middle School, you organized an all-school sit-in to protest a policy that gave students only 15 minutes for lunch. So I have two questions. Um, how was having a 15-minute lunch period even possible? And how did you rally the entire school to sit in in this way? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: I'm so impressed with your research, Debbie. Um, so, So this was in eighth grade. I went to a middle school called Washington Middle School, which was in Green Bay. And I think as an attempt to kind of control a fairly unruly student body, everyone had to put their head on the lunch table and be completely silent for a period of time before we were allowed to get up and get into the hot lunch line or start eating our lunch. Well, you can imagine there were like hundreds of students in the cafeterias, and by the time everyone was quiet, we had like 15 minutes left for lunch. So I thought that this was insane and totally unjust. I pulled together a group of friends, and we went from table to table and explained to these different students that we thought this was unjust, and if they agreed with us, they should sit in at the end of lunch for the amount of time that we should have had and You know, the administrators got very upset about this. We were sitting in and they were threatening students with detention and suspension. And eventually the students kind of filed out. But I was (laughs) the last person standing and got um, in school suspension for a week as a result. But... We did get the policy change. <laughs> Brava!
2: <laughs> well, by the time you went to high school, you were an active member of the debate and the forensics teams. You were the host of the Alice in Wonderland costume parties, and you were also teaching art in your backyard. Where did this range of interests come from?
0: Oh, my gosh. Um. You know, I think I was always just like a very curious kid. I was a big reader in high school. Debate and Forensics was an amazing outlet because Green Bay is a very small town and debate and forensics gave me the opportunity to travel all over the state of Wisconsin and meet other kids like meet people. I mean, this was like pre Internet. Right. So it was very hard to connect outside of your own little milieu. That's actually how I learned to write, was writing letters to these friends, because we would write each other letters and try to entertain each other and make each other laugh. And that was that was the main form of communication. You wrote a marvelous
2: essay in the book Before the Mortgage, Real Stories of Brazen Loves, Broken Leases, and the Perplexing Pursuit of Adulthood, titled Another One Rides the Comet Bus, in which you share an epiphany after discovering Aaron Cometbus's zine while you were still in high school. And I want to read a paragraph that you wrote because I think it's just magnificent. In it, you state the following. But then, every once in a while, apropos of almost nothing, a feeling would bloom in my chest. I'd be sitting on my bed listening to a rock song, and a flame would swirl up and go skittering along the length of my bones. There was something else out there. I felt it. Something sparkly, concentrated, dazzling. Things were supposed to glow. Things were supposed to, I don't know, happen. It had only been a couple of years since I'd shown up at school wearing a green sweatsuit with dinosaurs emblazoned on it in puffy paint. A major strategic error, but that's another story. And already childhood was fading out of view. I was halfway down the muddy footpath between being a kid and something else. What? Glory, beauty, heat death, said the days, orthodontia, said my mother. But now, here it was, exploding out from the pages of Comet Bus number 24. That was something else. First of all, I love that paragraph, and so encapsulates that feeling of being a teenager and wondering, what can I be how did you discover Comet Bus? How did it impact you? And also, can you describe the zine and, and and share what it was, what it meant to you?
0: Oh, I love, I love this question. Um, I came across Comet Bus through uh the channel of Sassy Magazine from the late mm, 80s. Remember early that? 90s. Wasn't that Jane Pratt who was the editor? The Jane Pratt yeah, era, yes. Yeah. Which was sort of like this proto-feminist yep. teen magazine, right? Yep. And they had, I think they had a feature called like Zine Corner, mm-hmm. which would just feature a different zine every every month. And you could get Comet Bus for a dollar. So I sent a dollar in to the post office box and got this zine. And I, I can't overstate how impactful it was for me because, like I said, I mean, I grew up in this very small town. There there just wasn't a lot going on. And this zine was like a window It was a portal into an adulthood that I didn't know existed. It was an adulthood of people who were living these outrageous lives kind of on the fringes of society, you know, dumpster diving and, you know, auditing random university classes while living in like hippie communes in the Bay Area. I mean, it was just like a world that I'd never, that I didn't know anything about. And so, For me, it painted a picture of an adulthood that was an adulthood of creativity and wonder and mystery and magic. And it made me feel excited, you know, excited for like becoming an adult and gave me a feeling of possibility and um, yeah,
2: and wonder. What made you decide to go to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and study physics.
0: So part of it was like a, just a, a real passion for trying to understand the laws of the universe and how, you know, the kind of beauty and elegance of, of, of the world that we see around us. That That's one reason. But I think it would be dishonest if I didn't also acknowledge that there was a part of me, I think, that was really influenced by deeply internalized patriarchal ideas and misogyny that that said in some kind of whisper that activities that were more associated with masculinity with men with the male world were more valuable and were more worthwhile than the kind of activities that spoke to my heart of of writing and art and music and and language and so I I think they were both present. Honestly, there was like part of me that was really genuinely very curious and excited and and wanting to understand that, the world in that way. And then I think there was part of me that sort of suppressed some of my other interests at that age before, you know, before kind of the lifelong unpacking of of internalized sexism. You must have been pretty
2: good at physics to get into MIT, especially since then you also transferred to Harvard. You have a degree in physics from Harvard University. What were you thinking at that time you were gonna do with it?
0: You know, I I started out um, at MIT thinking I would go into science and and transferred where to Harvard, where I, I finished my physics degree, but I started taking classes in all of these other fields that I was interested in. And so, I mean, I really didn't know where I was headed, but I, I knew that I needed to be involved in something with the humanities as well as the
2: sciences you've written about how after college, you moved home for a while and for the first time in your life felt completely at sea. Why?
0: Yeah, the first time, but not the last time. My goodness. (laughs) How many times? (laughs) Waving from the Um, boat. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I was completely lost when I graduated from college. It took me many, many years to learn that there's a career for curious people, and it's called journalism. <laughs> you actually get paid to learn things, which is amazing. But I didn't know that at the time. I didn't have any experience with it, and I I was clinically depressed by the end of college and moved home because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and it wasn't the last time that I I had sort of a a crisis of um, you know meaning and and identity, but. Yeah, it was the first of several, I would say, restarts um, to try to really figure out what I was meant to do and how I was meant to live in the world. But shortly thereafter,
2: you decided to go back to school and get a certificate in fine and studio arts from the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. After receiving your certificate, you got a job as a staff comedy writer for Garrison Keillor's live radio variety show a Prairie Home Companion. And you also ended up being an extra in the film that was made after with Meryl Streep and Lily Tomlin. I watched it trying to find you. I couldn't. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm wondering, how did you get that job from going from a degree at Harvard with, in physics to then a certificate in fine art to staff comedy writer?
0: So the whole, it's kind of the through line, I feel like, of my of my life has been writing. You know, the whole time I was... I was writing. I was, I mean, not in a professional way, but I was like writing letters and developing these deep relationships with people through language. And when I was looking for a job after I'd moved to Minneapolis, I saw that there was a writing job available at Minnesota Public Radio. I didn't know actually that it was for Prairie Home Companion. It just said, you know, staff writer position. And I thought, well, I love public radio. What could be better than a staff writer position? I'll, I'll apply. And then as through the application process, I I learned that it was for this show, Prairie Home Companion. And I was like, huh, okay. Well, I'll give it a whirl. And they asked for some sample sketches. So I wrote some sample sketches. One of the ones I turned in was like a, a call-in show where the Supreme to the Supreme Court, where like the Supreme Court answered like we listeners call-in questions or something. Oh like my that. God, that would be good now.
2: <laughs> wow. For any right? producers that are listening. Jessica Nordell has an idea for a show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and then one thing led to another, and and I got hired. So it was kind of my first real job that had that paid a salary. I remember the first thing I did with my first paycheck was purchase a, a mattress. So I was no longer sleeping on a futon. That's always a nice rite of passage. <laughs> Absolutely. While you were there, you co-created and produced the
2: five-part interview series Literary Friendships, featuring writer pairs, including Michael Chabon and Eilette Waldman, Michael Cunningham, Marie Howe, Robert Bly and Donald Hall, among many others. And for that work, you won a Gracie Award for Outstanding National Magazine Program. Congratulations. That's a hard award to win. Thank you. And after two years, you left and joined the great Krista Tippett as an associate producer for her Peabody award-winning show, Speaking of Faith, which is now
0: On Being. Um, What did you do with Krista? I was an associate producer, so I researched um, guests and helped put together interview questions, um, helped with editing sessions. It was a pretty small crew there, I think, at that point. We were still, the show was still part of Minnesota Public Radio. And I think there were maybe five or six people on staff. So it was kind of all hands on deck. And um, yeah, it was a great experience.
2: This next part of your life um, really excited me. You decided to go back to school to obtain an MFA in poetry from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where you were the Martha Meyer Rank Distinguished Poetry Fellow and received an award in the Alana Carmel Writing Program. Now, after studying physics and working in comedy in
0: public radio, what made you decide to choose poetry? Um, Poetry has been very important to me since age 13 or 14, uh, which is when I first encountered the great Adrian Rich, who has just been a huge influence on my life. Maybe there's something special about age 13 or 14 when kind of like the portals open and everything comes in. That was the time when I experienced Comet Bus and um, kind of got exposed to a lot of the world. And it was a moment when um, her book, Atlas of a Difficult World, had just come out. And I happened to read a couple of her poems um, in a magazine and was just completely entranced. Um, I heard about these incredible MFA programs where you like get paid to spend a couple of years working on poetry and reading it and writing it. And it sounded incredible. So, so that's what I did next. Your poetry
2: has appeared in Field and Speakeasy magazine. It was also included in the best new poets of 2015, which, and and those poems were chosen by Tracy K. Smith published by university of Virginia press. And I'm wondering if, if you could read the poem that's included in, in that book, it's a book, a poem called Girl Running. And I think it's, it's really beautiful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Along the edge of the park, a girl is running barefoot at the top of a ledge. The girl is four or five. The ledge is six inches wide. She's moving fast. The trees are rising behind her like dense green thunderheads. On each side of her, pigeons burble and break, pedaling backward in air. She runs... Past the screech of the occupied sandlot, the voices split open, distorted in heat. She pulls past the ice cream truck, struck to a stuttering blaze, the screech and crawl of the street. The sun is warming the limestone she runs on. The wind is lapping the grit from her body. And the flanks of the truck flicker heatless and dumb as the televised blitz of a city. The meters are flashing their blank exhortations. The sun is pitched like a snare, beating time. Don't speak to her. If she keeps her eyes on the stone, she can run this way for a long time. Ugh, oh, goosebumps. Are you still writing poetry, Jessica? Hmm. I have not written a lot of poetry um, I'm trying to decide how much <laughs> how much to share. Um, and we don't have to. It's entirely yeah, up to you. No, I'm I'm happy to. Um, yeah, about ten years ago, I experienced a a pretty uh, severe mental health crisis, and over the year or two that it that it took to recover from that, I found it increasingly hard to access poetry. Poetry is a little bit like a, a very shy guest, a very kind of shy and honored guest. And I feel like one has to kind of prepare a welcome <laughs> for poetry to arrive in one's spirit and heart. And I, I found that very difficult to do. And so I try to bring poetry into all the writing that I do now. And I am working on kind of opening those gates again Good. I,
2: I, I could feel the poetry in your writing and I want to talk to you about the writing that you're currently doing, but it makes me happy to think that you might be writing poetry again. I've talked to Elizabeth Alexander about the sort of going back and forth between writing poetry and being a poet. You're always a poet. It's just a matter of whether or not you're writing the poetry.
1: Mm.
0: I think that's true. Yeah. Um, You
2: taught writing, you taught poetry in the Oak Hill Correctional Institution as you were transitioning to full-time writing. You also worked as a branding and business innovation consultant, which I was really um, surprised but also delighted by. Um, You initially, while you were struggling to be able to work as a full-time writer, You write about how you pitched ideas to editors at national magazines and and mostly got no response. Discouraged, you decided to conduct an experiment with your name.
0: Tell us what you did. Yeah, this was a, um, this was, gosh, probably 2005 or 2006. As you you say, I, I was trying to to kind of break into national publications, not having any luck, just having silent, you know, sending out cold queries and just having no response at all. And there was a particular essay that I had been working on. I was really proud of. And it was tied to like a particular event that was happening. And so it had a kind of a short window of relevance. And I wasn't getting any response. And I knew that the window was closing. And if it wasn't picked up by somewhere, it would just die a a slow, sad death. So I kind of in a moment of desperation, I created a new email inbox for myself. I sent out the same essay using the initials JD. So I presented myself as JD Nordell instead of Jessica Nordell and sent it to the same outlets. And that piece was accepted within a couple of hours and published. And it started my career, really, As a journalist, it was the first time my 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 work was kind of brought to a larger audience. And I had a dilemma, like, do I continue to use this pseudonym? Is there something dishonest about it? If I am not actually presenting myself as J.D. in my actual life, this is just something I'm using to, you know, to to get editors attention. And I I used it for a few years, actually. And then eventually I, I just couldn't do it anymore. It didn't feel authentic to who I was. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just submit as Jessica. And if I go back to hearing nothing, then so be it. But that was sort of the first big moment of true confrontation with, with, with gender bias in a very undeniable way.
2: You say that essay started your career. What essay was that?
0: That was an essay about Actually, circling back earlier, it was an essay about appearing as an extra in the Prairie Home Companion oh, movie. Oh, okay. Yes, I read that piece. That was a great piece.
2: Really terrific Thank piece. You. Um, Since then, your essays have appeared in the New York Times and Slate, Salon, many other prestigious publications. And you've written how that experience gave you the sort of firsthand opportunity to see how bias and its flip side advantage are dynamic and penetrating forces transforming their recipients from the inside, just as they strike from the outside. Those are your words. And Mm -hmm. as a white woman, you've been writing about bias for close to 15 years. What Mm -hmm. motivated you to dedicate
0: yourself to this topic? I think, you know, the door was cracked open for me by the experience we just talked about, as well as my experience in the workplace, my experiences as a woman in the workplace. Um, I worked for... uh, I worked in the marketing and branding field for a while as I was, you know, making my circuitous way as a writer. And the experience... Some of the experiences I had were so infuriating, but also felt paralyzing. Like, I didn't know how to get out of this box um, in which I felt that my... My work was was undervalued compared to my male colleagues. I remember having a particular experience where I had I worked on a project for a particular client and the sales at this particular event went were like 30 times as as great after I worked on this project as they had been before. And the response that I got from leadership was like, oh, well, you just got lucky. It's because you happen to know this sector really well. So there was this message I was getting that like your success is because you're lucky, not because you're skilled. Then there were experiences like being told I was too abrasive when a male colleague behaved exactly the same way or even more, (laughs) more so. You're nodding like this sounds familiar. Well,
2: especially in the branding world in the 90s and the aughts, it's much, much better now still not perfect by any means but there were times in in the 90s particularly where in the field of branding i was sometimes the only woman in the room and mm-hmm. and heard a lot of those same things and mm-hmm. and really was nodding all through reading your book actually
0: yeah and so those experiences really just stayed with me and made me very curious to understand what the heck is going on how is it that i am able to be this extremely competent Capable, skilled person, and yet the people I'm working with can't see it. Like, or they, or they're seeing it through a veil. It's like they're not even seeing me. They're looking through a day. They're they're seeing a daydream or a hallucination rather than a, a human being and evaluating me on my merits. And so, my kind of professional interest in bias really came from a lot out of personal experiences. And then over the years. It it morphed into, you know, moving beyond thinking about gender bias. But like, what is this thing that is causing us to see so many different people through a veil, through a gauze, no, no matter what their social identity? This has been kind of like my driving question for the last like many years.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting when in the 90s, particularly in the 90s, when I was experiencing that, I never really saw it as gender bias. Um, because of my own mm. issues, I thought it was just because I wasn't good enough. So, and I know that you write about that in the book as well, that it just never occurred to me that it was gender-based. It was just debbie based. Um, and now that I'm married to a woman of color, I actually see on a on a firsthand level, almost every day, micro and macro aggressions that are all race-based, race-based, gender-based, body based. and and it's and it's really horrific. Um, So let's talk about your book. This is your first book. It's called The End of Bias, A Beginning. It was published late last year. It is about to be published as a paperback. It has been shortlisted for the 2022 Columbia Journalism Lucas Prize for Excellence in Nonfiction, the 2022 New York Public Library Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism, the 2021 Royal Society Science Book Prize, was also named a Best Book of the Year by the World Economic Forum, Greater Good, the AARP, and Inc. Magazine. It is being used by organizations now, from newsrooms to startups to universities, healthcare organizations, and faith communities to solve some of their biggest cultural challenges. It's also, as you might well expect listeners, a quite poetic read. Congratulations, Jessica. Thank you so much. Your book is divided into three parts. I learned so much, um, how bias works, changing minds and making it last. And in the first part of the book, you outline the history of prejudice in the United States and examine implicit bias and stereotyping. The second part includes a section on police violence and outlines efforts to break the habit of stereotyping, and in the last section of the book, you outline the impact bias has had in healthcare and education, which I've also seen firsthand. And I wanna share some statistical facts, so I'm gonna read this. It's, it's rather lengthy, but I think very, very important for people to hear and understand. If you're a prospective graduate student with a name that sounds Indian, Chinese, Latino, black, or female, you're less likely to hear back from faculty members than if your name is Brad Anderson. If you're a same-sex couple, you're more likely to be denied a home loan than a heterosexual couple. If you're a white job applicant with a criminal record, one study found you're more likely to get a callback than if you are a black job applicant with a criminal record. If you're Latino or black, you're less likely to receive opioids for pain than a white patient. If you're an obese child, your teacher is more likely to doubt your academic ability than if you're slim. If your hobbies and activities suggest you grow up rich, you're more likely to be called back by a law firm than if they imply a poor childhood, unless you're a woman, in which case you'll be seen as less committed than a wealthy man. If you're a black student, you're more likely to be seen as a troublemaker than a white student behaving the same way. If you're a light-skinned basketball player, announcers will be more likely to comment on your mind. If you're dark-skinned, your body. If you're a woman, your medical symptoms will be taken less seriously. If you're a woman seeking a job in a lab, you'll be seen as less competent and deserving of a lower salary than a man with an identical resume. Pursuing an academic fellowship, one study found you must be 2.5 times as productive as a man to be rated equally competent. Just need to let that sit there for a moment. Jessica, how much of this behavior do you believe is intentional?
0: Mm, that is such a good question, Debbie. <laughs> this is something that I have wrestled with over, over the course of researching and writing this book, really this question. The, the psychology field tends to sort of group bias into two categories, conscious intentional bias, which is, you know, overt prejudice, overt racism, sexism, white nationalism, things like this. And then there's unconscious or implicit bias, which is unintentional, spontaneous, automatic. It happens outside of our conscious awareness. I think it's actually more complicated than that. What I've come to really believe over the course of of doing this research and talking to many experts and and really sinking into the, the science is that we are an unknowable combination of conscious and unconscious biases, and that any particular reaction that we have to another person might have both components. Um, there might be elements that we're totally unaware of. There might be ways that we're I, I certainly have seen this in others. I know. I, for a fact, I, I I've experienced it myself. There are t- times when we react automatically and spontaneously without awareness of why why we're making a judgment or an evaluation or an assessment of another person, and then there are times when I think we we are a, a little bit aware of it, or we can be made aware of it if we just pause to notice it. In fact, one I mean one of the sort of cruxes of the of the book and and the some of the interventions that i describe really hinge on the ability for us to to become aware of of these processes and to to develop more of a practice of noticing our reactions and then interrupting them through various you know through the various approaches that i talk about
2: you write that most people do not go into their professions with the goal of hurting others or providing disparate treatment but those who intend and value fairness, it is still possible to act in discriminatory ways. And that contradiction between values of fairness and the reality of real world discrimination has come to be called unconscious bias or implicit bias or sometimes unintentional or unexamined bias. And I don't really like those two. I feel like it takes people off the hook, Hmm. but ultimately it describes the behavior of people who think they're acting one way, but in fact act in another. How we work to end that is the focus of your book. Um, But did you go into the process of writing this book with the Idea That it would be possible to end bias because I feel very hopeless right now, even reading your book, which I think is marvelous. And I want everybody in the entire universe to read it because it is so helpful and so enlightening. But I also feel like there are still so many people that want to believe the world that they live in is the world that they should live in which is all about white supremacy, which is all about women being second-class citizens, which is all about people of color not getting the same opportunities. And I feel so hopeless. Do you really truly believe that the world can change?
0: I went into this project wanting to find out whether it was possible to change because unconscious or, you know, unintentional bias, implicit bias, it seems so... um, confounding, because how can we possibly address something if we're not even fully aware of what's going on? And is it possible to even motivate people to to want to put in the effort? Yes. Because it is work to yes. actually interrupt this. And so that was my question. Like, is it possible? And my project was looking at the data, looking at the research, trying to find examples of Approaches that had actually measurably changed people's behavior. And so, I mean, it was like an empirical question for me. I was like, I don't know the answer. And through the process of researching and writing this book, I, I found many examples of approaches that did change people's behavior. There are approaches that, believe it or not, have changed police behavior. There are approaches that have changed doctors' behavior. To eliminate disparities, there are approaches that have changed teachers' behavior to decrease the disparities in suspensions between white students and non-white students, and so there are these approaches that actually work. Of course, the question is like, do we have the political will, the collective will, to use them? You know, to actually put them in place. This is an open question. I I wish I could wave a magic wand and and make make it all happen, but I at least wanted to give people the tools to be able to make a difference wherever they are, you know, in their own local communities, organizations, neighborhoods, cultures. I do know that certain changes are possible. Um,
2: when my wife, Roxanne Gay, wrote the book Hunger, a memoir of my body, she talks quite a lot about how doctors treated her, um, assuming that any ailment was weight based because she was bigger than they thought she should be um, and didn't give her the care. Um, And also now how different her world is after losing a substantial amount of weight. Um, And she now knows for a fact that doctors are given her book to read or assigned her book to read when they are in school so that they have a better understanding of how to treat both people of color and people who aren't uh, living in a mainstream body, talk about how you've seen. You said that there are ways that police are being trained differently. Talk about what you've seen in the
0: world to give us hope. You know, there, there are sort of approaches that try to tackle bias head on, and then there are approaches who that sort of use indirect methods to change people's behavior. So I'll give you an example from healthcare. Um, there is a group of um, doctors at Johns Hopkins Hospital that were really concerned with blood clot prevention. And blood clots are really dangerous. If you get a blood clot, it can be catastrophic or even fatal. Um, And they found that patients were not getting appropriate blood clot prevention when they were being admitted to the hospital. And so they developed um, a computerized checklist that took doctors through a series of systematic questions for every patient to determine whether they should receive blood clot prevention or not. Interestingly, this wasn't actually intended to reduce disparities at all. They were just trying to kind of improve blood clot prevention for everybody. But later, when they went back and analyzed the data, they found that it had eliminated the disparities between the prevention that men and women were getting. So before this intervention, women were receiving significantly lower rates of appropriate treatment. After this computerized checklist that really required doctors to use kind of objective standard criteria to make a decision, that disparity was eliminated.
2: Another doctor example that I found really fascinating was when you talk about how ovarian cancer has always been considered this sort of silent killer, when in fact there are a lot of things that point to that potentially being what somebody is suffering from that women have been talking about for decades and that's all but been ignored can you talk a little bit
0: about that you know the history of medicine is unfortunately very much also the history of women's symptoms being ignored women's pain being under uh treated you know women's sort of narration of their own lives their own experiences being devalued and ignored and sidelined and in the case of ovarian cancer um, it was for many years thought like to be a silent killer that had no symptoms, no no obvious symptoms. Well, it turned out women had been complaining of things like constipation and bloating for, for years. And these are now seen as actually symptoms of ovarian cancer, but they were just dismissed as being irrelevant. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, you know, one of many examples of ways that that women have not been Taken seriously, you know, that their their reports of their own lives and their own experiences have not been taken seriously by the medical profession.
2: Since the murder of George Floyd, there's been quite a lot of, I want to say, virtue signaling in the workplace with diversity training. And you outline how diversity training is now a multi-billion dollar a year industry and how nearly every fortune 500 company uses some form of it. You detail how the training has expanded to include unconscious bias training, which is now de rigueur at organizations across business law, government, and have given rise to a cottage industry of trainers, speakers, and consultants. But, you state that DEI workshops and anti-racist training can often make bias even worse. How
0: How so? Well, I, I don't know if I would say it can often make it worse. I guess what I would say is that the challenge with these trainings is that they're often not evaluated. So you could imagine, you know, a comparison would be developing a medicine and distributing it in a community and then not testing to see what effect it's having or whether it's actually curing the thing that it's meant to cure. The problem, I think, with a lot of trainings is that we just don't know what effect they're having. Some have been found to cause backlash. There's a some work by some soci- a sociologist at Harvard and a sociologist at Tel Aviv University um, who looked at decades of diversity initiatives in large companies, and they found, for instance, that after mandatory diversity trainings the number of women of color in management decreased. Why is that? How is that possible? The hypothesis that the researchers um, suggest is that when managers feel like their autonomy is being taken away, that they're being forced to do something that they don't choose, it causes backlash and it causes them to kind of do something else, sort of to to protest and regain their autonomy. That's kind of the psychological explanation that these that these researchers give. So I think, you know, I think the important thing is to figure out well what are the actual goals? Like what are what are we really trying to do? Are we trying to create more psychological safety in the workplace for everyone? If so, how do we measure that? And then and then how can we determine whether this training or intervention or year-long program is actually getting us closer to that goal or is this just, you know, a legal liability checkbox that's not actually having any kind of meaningful effect. I think that's the really important question we need to answer.
2: Yeah, I was really struck by one respondent who simply stated that he was never going to have a meeting alone with a woman again because he was so afraid of getting in trouble. It's like, dude, just don't say the wrong things. Don't do the wrong things. Um, Right. and, And that was really depressing. You also found in one series of studies that lean-in type messages lead people to think workplace gender inequality is women's fault and that it's women's responsibility to solve. And I know that my wife, Roxanne, also says that quite a lot when people are asking her, white women in particular, you know, what could I do different? What could I do better? And she's like, it's not my job to teach you that. Um, And that lean-in commands are insufficient. There will never be a smile wide enough, a tone unassuming enough to outmaneuver another person's misjudgments. Given how much gender bias there is in the workplace, how do we overcome this? Do you do you think that there's a way for women to be allowed to be as ambitious as men or as aggress- aggressive or as bitchy or as bossy? I mean, all of these terms are seen as insulting to women, but yet
0: commanding to men. That is the one of the reasons I wrote this book, because I think it, it takes a change of consciousness among leaders at a company. It's not women's fault that they are systematically, you know, denied opportunities. And I think it's incredibly dangerous for us to give women the message that if they only did something differently, if they only wore a softer sweater, if they only spoke with a smile, if they only did this, if they only did that, then the doors would open because the goalposts change and shift. And it's an insane tightrope to ask women to walk, you know, be feminine, but not too feminine, be assertive, but not too assertive. Like there's no way to solve that problem. It's interesting, you know, when I was first talking about writing this book, some of the advice I got from people in the publishing industry was to focus the book on things that women and people of color could do to overcome the biases that were being expressed toward them. And I just feel strongly that that is not the problem we need to solve. We need to solve the problem of the expression of bias. And that's that's where the work needs to be done at the organizational level, at the leadership level, at you know the individual level, rather than put the burden on the people who are being most affected. One of the centerpieces of your book is the creation of a computer workplace
2: simulation that you called NormCorp. And you worked with the computer science professor, Kenny Joseph, and designed a simulation to quantify gender bias in the workplace. And this gave you ample real world data upon which to draw. Can you talk a little bit about your methodology and the
0: study and the outcomes? Yeah. You know, while I was working on this project, I had this kind of burning question which was how much do all of these daily experiences add up because if you look at the research about bias it tends to focus on like a snapshot a moment in time like a moment that a resume is being evaluated a moment a doctor is encountering a patient and making a diagnosis and the truth is like Bias doesn't just happen once or twice, it happens continuously. I mean, as as you've described with you know, experiencing life alongside Roxanne, like you're seeing this daily accumulation of microaggressions and biases. And what I couldn't find was sort of a quantification of the impact of these experiences over a long period of time, which is how they're actually experienced in the real world. So I I kept asking researchers and experts, like, what's the what's the ultimate impact? And no one really had an answer. And so I approached a computer scientist about collaborating with me to create a computer simulation called an agent-based model where you create these sort of individual agents who interact with one another over time according to really simple rules. And then you watch what happens in the simulation. And what we did was we created a virtual workplace called NormCorp, which is a very simple workplace where very little happens. Actually, people just do projects, then they get evaluated. The projects succeed or fail, they get evaluated, and then their score goes up or down. And that determines how likely they are to be promoted. And then every so often promotions happen and the top scorers get promoted to the next level. So it's a very simplified kind of abstract <laughs> workplace. Um, and then we introduced five or six Patterns of gender bias that are really well documented that women experience all the time. Things like having their work devalued compared to a man's work, Um, being more penalized for failing or for screwing up than a similar man, getting less credit when they work on a mixed gender team, things like this, or being penalized for seeming too aggressive or too assertive, not communal enough. And so we introduced those biases uh, t- with a very small amount, just 3%. We just introduced a 3% bias in how women were evaluated in this simulation. And what we found after we ran the simulation over many, many cycles was that in this hierarchical workplace, NormCorp has eight levels of hierarchy. What we found was that after we ran the simulation, we ended up with a workplace where the top level was 87% men. And that was only with a 3% difference. But when it when it happened over and over and over with enough frequency, it accumulated into a really significant disparity.
2: You ran the simulation over 20 promotion cycles. Did you always have the same results?
0: Yeah, so we... We ended up running the simulation over 20 cycles. And then we did, I think, 100 different iterations of the simulation and took an average of what, what happened over 100 different simulations. And we found that on average, it was about 87% men at the top level.
2: One of the wonderful things that I learned in your book about this sort of notion of the way in which we learn, you refer to ants as an example, and you say, ants interact according to some simple rules. They react to chemical scents, such as those of other ants, larvae, and food. They leave behind their own scents. They also react to sound. Over time, these behaviors compound and allow ant colonies to solve difficult problems, like finding the best foraging route to and from food, avoiding traffic jams. As they react to one another's chemical traces while foraging, for instance, they spontaneously form a highway system. a central inbound lane going from food source to the nest, flanked by two outbound lanes from the nest to the food source. These ants are not directed by an ant overlord. They are merely engaging with one another according to basic rules. And so we are behaving in exactly the same way the ants are.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the ant example might seem a little out of place, but I think, you know. Ant colonies are a complex system. So a complex system is a is a system where you have many individuals interacting with one another over a long period of time and you the, the result is maybe unexpected or large or different from what you might imagine if you only look at the individual interactions. You can have lots of micro interactions and behaviors that if they're practiced over long enough can have massive Results. I mean, if you if you think about weathering in the case of race and health, we there's this idea that it's the accumulated stressors of racism that contribute to the massive health disparities between African-Americans and and white people in this country, for instance. It's not one thing. It's the accumulation and the repetition over time that that gives rise to this this system um, that we see
2: when we started first started talking about your book we i outlined all of those instances of bias and i was heartened as i went through your book to, to to see that you believe that we can unlearn our biases and you outline very straightforward ways organizations can interrupt bias and these include standardizing criteria for hiring and for promotions um, in the field of medicine, doctors can use a standardized checklist for care to ensure everyone is treated the same. Can you talk a little bit about this standardizing uh, criteria and checklists and how they can be created and implemented with as much ease and speed as possible?
0: Yeah. So the example that I that I described earlier about um, blood clot prevention is 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 an excellent example of this kind of standardized checklist approach to reducing biases. The idea is that you're kind of taking a decision out of the realm of um, of a black box and and really breaking it down into systematic steps. And this approach can be used in lots of different areas. I mean, one one way that it can be used in the workplace, for instance, is, is in like an interview context. So say say an an organization is interviewing people for for a job. This is an area that's like ripe for bias because if I go into an interview with you and I'm just kind of winging it, I might ask you questions based on some perceived similarities we have. I might give you slightly, you know, give you the benefit of the doubt in certain cases. I might ask you softball questions because of some kind of affinity I feel. There's a a concept that I find really useful called homophily, which means literally love of the same. And Mm -hmm. it describes the way that we sometimes gravitate toward people who remind us of ourselves. This happens in the workplace all the time. Anytime you hear someone say, oh, we hired that person because they were a culture fit. That's homophily, right? <laughs> That's like we we hired them because they were like us. Um, and so a way to interrupt this in in an interview setting in a workplace is by developing a set of standardized questions um, ahead of time. And so every person who's interviewed gets asked the exact same set of 12 questions or you know five questions. and that way you you can start to compare apples to apples instead of just sort of letting interviewers run wild with whatever biases you know might be informing their the questions and the conversation they're having with people.
2: I've also read about ways that people are looking at the first screen of resumes without names or locations and just qualifications. And that seems to be a way to avoid some of that, oh, that person doesn't look like me or that person doesn't have the homophily that that we can sometimes veer to.
0: Right. So, um the Hubble so in order to get if you're an astronomer, in order to get time on the Hubble Space Telescope, you have to submit an application. And the committee has started to remove identifiers from the application of astronomers to use the Hubble Space Telescope. And an analysis of more than 15,000 applicants over 16 years found that before they removed the identifiers from the applications, men's proposals were accepted at a higher rate than women's. But after they removed the names from the applications, the disparity actually reversed women. Women's applications were accepted at a higher rate than men's. Hmm. Wonder what that means. (laughs) I mean, I think often it's that, you know, if if a particular group has has had more obstacles, you know, has had faced more hurdles in order to get to a certain level, um, they might you know, they they might have had to have more accomplishments in order to get to that level.
2: Are there any places that you found where there's been an aggregation of these types of standardized criteria for questions, for interviews, for checklists? Is there a place, a repository, where people can go to learn about how to create these more standardized lists and criteria?
0: that's an amazing idea, Debbie, like, <laughs> we should make that. <laughs> um, I, I don't I don't know of a uh, of sort of like a specific sort of toolkit, as, as you're describing that specifically around standardization. I'm actually working, I'm, I'm partnering with um, a researcher right now to look at checklist approaches in medicine and try to reanalyze um, studies to see if they're if they're if this pattern is holding true with lots of different studies, whether checklists are actually eliminating um, gender and racial disparities across different um, a- a- across different medical studies. So we'll hopefully know more soon. You know, I do think that this type of systemic change is
2: going to require that individuals think that they could make a difference, that they can look at their unconscious bias or their bias and begin to take steps to to make changes. And, And that needs to be something that has to be very conscious. For those that are listening to the show today, what would be one or two things that you think that anybody could do on an individual basis to confront or become more aware of their unconscious bias and make small or large changes to begin to behave differently in the world?
0: You know, I think the very first step is to begin practicing noticing the assumptions and predictions that come up in one's own mind when encountering another person, particularly a person across some kind of social difference. And it sounds really easy, like, oh, just notice what's happening. It's really hard. It takes Mm -hmm. a lot of practice because it's a habit. You know, it's something we've been so conditioned to do. So developing the muscle of notice, just first noticing what is coming to mind when I encounter this person. What am I expecting from this person? What am I predicting? What kinds of assumptions am I making about this person's background, their future, their behavior, anything? Because once you start to notice then that is like the golden key because then you can interrupt it. Then you can pause and ask yourself, wait a second, do I know for sure that that's what that person is talking about? Is that's where they're coming from? That's what they're going to do. That That's what they intend. Um, that's like the first step of human agency, of freedom, being able to actually see what's happening in your own mind. So I think that's that. that's a really good first step. Another thing that I would, Suggest to everyone is learn history. This is, I think, a really under uh, under researched approach. But I, 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 there are a couple of um, studies that suggest that learning history, learning about discrimination in the past, helps us see it in the present and be able to perceive it and understand it better in the present. And I certainly found this to be the case in my own work. I mean, the more I understood the way the policies and practices of the past affected people of the past, the the better I was able to really understand the present and how those patterns from the past live on in the present. Um, Medical racism, for instance, the kind of scientific racism that was pervasive in the 19th century was codified in medical journals. I mean, these were professional academic medical journals that systematically, you know, disregarded African Americans and saw them as debilitated and, you know, less human. And and this was taught to doctors. So I think, you know, that's just like one little slice of history that if we if we understand it, we can start to appreciate our present situation so much better. So I would encourage everyone to to do as much as they can to understand um, the discrimination of the past.
2: You've said you've come to see bias as a kind of soul violence, an attack not just on the material conditions of one's life, but an assault on one's sense of self. How do you feel you were changed over the course of your research and, and writing this book?
0: It was a transformative experience for me. It forced me to see how deeply I'd been conditioned by false beliefs, about every group in our society, women, African-American people, people of different religions and ages. And, you know, one of the things I did over the course of researching the book was, was try to find out where these ideas came from originally. Like, where did patriarchy come from? Where did racism come from? One of the things that changed me the most was understanding the way these ideas were developed at specific moments in human history. They're not, like, ideas that have been with us forever. They're not natural. They're not supernatural. They're not, you know, inevitable. They're, they're human. No, they're constructs, yeah. They are constructs. They're human inventions. And for me, really seeing the way that these are human inventions kind of loosened their grip on me. I began to see them as human creations, you know, like, like the automobile. This is mm-hmm. not, you know, something that we, you know, was just dropped from the heavens. It was something that humans built. And so- Yeah, they're just bad ideas. They're lies. They're lies. And so not just understanding that, but grasping that in the sense that Claudia Rankin talks about the difference between understanding that, how the bigotry of the past affects us and grasping it, really grasping that I think was, was transformative in that it, the grip of those ideas began to loosen more and more.
2: You stated that when you began the end of Bias, you thought you were writing a work of science, but as you worked on it, the original plan dissolved. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how and in what way that happened.
0: You know, I began the project thinking, like most of us do, I think, I'm probably a little less biased than everyone else. I'm probably a little more objective than everybody else. I thought, if I, if I can just find the best interventions, the best approaches, the best science, and synthesize that and share that in the most engaging way possible, then I can just kind of de- deliver this tool. What I found very quickly when I began the project was that every bias that I saw out in the world was living inside me, and that I couldn't write a book with authenticity and sincerity if I didn't address it in me also. So it became this kind of like dual project of like, you know, research and reporting and writing and also like deep internal work and struggle and questioning and making mistakes and screwing up and trying to repair over and over.
2: Well, thank you for doing that work, because I know that initially there was someone that very early on in your writing suggested that your work was paternalistic and i know that that was something that hurt you but then it gave you the opportunity to look inward how did mm. that change your your approach
0: you know when when my own work was was described that way by people that i respected i i responded i think the way a lot of us do when we're sort of called out on something that we haven't seen in ourselves i got really defensive i got angry i did a lot of justifying I realized that that was a grief reaction. Anger, denial, bargaining. Mm. That was grief. And <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. I think under profound anger is always grief. Yes,
0: And I think that, you know, I think I was grieving some kind of lost innocence. You know, I thought that I was one kind of person. And what I found was that there was, there were sort of ugly sides of my own you know mind and heart that i that i hadn't seen before but i came to see that as a huge gift because it allowed me the opportunity to see things i hadn't seen about my own thinking my own the the racism that i had internalized from our culture the sexism i had internalized from our culture and i think it's only when we see those things that we actually have the opportunity to to start to shift and change so it it, it was a huge gift to me ultimately
2: yeah, I think that those are the moments where we really learn the most about who we are. You know, part of what I learned as I was even coming out later in life was the, the fear that I had doing that because of my own inner homophobia. So I think if people begin to see that our biases are something that we've been taught, it becomes a lot more urgent for us to unlearn those so that, so that we don't perpetuate them. Mm-hmm. Jessica, I have one last question for you. Um, you talked about it a little bit, but I want to ask you about what's next on your horizon. What are you gearing up to do?
0: So with this book, one thing that's been really exciting is I've heard from lots of different kinds of communities that are using the book. Um, and so I'm developing some reading guides for different sorts of communities, churches, synagogues, different groups that are, using the book in their own journeys. Um so that's that's been really rewarding and then I'm I'm thinking and I'm developing um the the next project which is going to be um looking at mental health.
2: Oh, good. Wonderful. Yet another thing so many of us need help with. Jessica, thank you so much for making so much work that matters. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
0: Thank you so much, Debbie. I truly enjoyed the conversation. Jessica
2: Nordell's book is The End of Bias, A Beginning, How We Eliminate Unconscious Bias and Create a More Just World. And it is just out now in paperback by yourself a copy and by everyone you know a copy as well. You can find out more about Jessica and her many projects on jessicanordell.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Wyland.